Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 5.35 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is the 4th of October, 2021. This is episode 487 of Bitcoin and the Pandora Papers. The biggest ever leak of offshore data exposes financial secrets of rich and powerful. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's going to go to jail. Nobody's going to get fined. Nobody gives a shit. Good Monday morning to you people. It's happening all over again. And uh, yeah, nobody's going to go to jail. Nobody's going to get in trouble. It's going to be a news story for a week and then everybody's going to forget about it. Every single person. Nothing ever changes, right? I don't know. Maybe some, Maybe this time it will change. Who knows? I, you know, I can't say for certain that nobody's going to get in trouble over this, but Given the past, if you know, if the past is any indication of the future, well, probably nobody's going to get in trouble. But in case you were under a rock yesterday when this shit broke, let's read this uh, small Guardian article so that you can get up to date. <clears throat> it doesn't really have anything to do with Bitcoin, I know, but still, this is the kind of shit that we have to deal with. And again, this is theguardian.com. Uh, there's no, there's actually no author line here, so I don't know who wrote it. Um, sorry. <laughs> the secret deals and hidden assets of some of the world's richest and most powerful people have been revealed in the biggest trove of leaked offshore data in history. You guys remember the Panama Papers? Do you? Apparently this one's even larger, so let's get into it. Branded the Pandora Papers. The cache includes 11.9 million files from companies hired by wealthy clients to create offshore structures and trusts in tax havens such as Panama, Dubai, Monaco, Switzerland, and the Caymans. They expose the secret offshore affairs of 35 world leaders, including current and former presidents, prime ministers, and heads of state. They also shine a light on the secret finances of more than 300 other public officials such as government ministers, judges, mayors, and military generals in more than 90 different countries. The files include disclosures about major donors to the conservative party, raising difficult questions for Boris Johnson as his party meets for its annual conference. More than 100 billionaires feature in the leaked data, as well as celebrities, rock stars, and business leaders. Many use shell companies to hold luxury items such as property and yachts, of course. You gotta have the yacht, right? As well as incognito bank accounts. There is even art ranging from looted Cambodian antiques to paintings by Picasso and murals by Banksy. The Pandora Papers reveal the inner workings of what a shadow financial world providing a rare window into the hidden operations of global offshore economy that enables some of the richest people to hide their wealth and in some cases pay little or no tax. There are emails, memos, and corporation records share certificates, compliance reports, and complex diagrams showing labyrinthine corporate structures. Often they allow the true owners of opaque shell companies to be identified for the very first time. The files were leaked to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists in Washington. It shared access to the leaked data and select media partners, including The Guardian, BBC Panorama, Le Monde, and The Washington Post. More than 600 journalists have sifted through the files as part of a massive global investigation. The Pandora Papers represent the latest and largest in terms of data volume in a series of major leaks of financial data that have convulsed the offshore world since 2013. Setting up or benefiting from offshore entities is not itself illegal, and in some cases, people may have legitimate reasons, such as security, for doing so, but the secrecy offered by tax havens has at times proven unattractive, or rather attractive, to tax evaders, fraudsters, and money launderers 
some of whom are exposed in the files. And that's it. There's not a single name listed, is there? Yeah. Think about it. Think about it that way. Now, I'm sure somewhere, hopefully, in the future, very soon future, uh, some, some articles will come out that do actually list the names of these people. But as of yet, I have read three articles about this shit. And guess what? Not a single person is named. That's right. Out of 35 world leaders and 300 other public officials and prime ministers and former presidents and governors and judges and mayors and military generals in 90 countries, not a, I haven't seen a single name. Not a single one. What good is it to release all this information and have not a single person named? So we're going to have to see, ladies and gentlemen, whether or not this thing goes anywhere. Panama Papers resulted in bupkis, right? Nobody went to jail. There was all kinds of, of shit in there. Nope, nope. Nope, I, you know, I, I'm... You know, I hate to be a cynic, but I'm going to be a cynic. Uh, ain't nobody getting in trouble for this one. Hope they do, but I ain't holding my breath. Now, before we get into the rest of the news, uh, a small reminder <coughs> by at B-O, oh, sorry, at B-Boro I'm He, yeah, from Twitter, says, please drink your coffee. Mine doesn't seem to be working, and I blame the uncaffeinated. Screw you, uncaffeinated people. I hate you. You're evil and you're causing me grief, apparently, because my coffee doesn't seem to be working either. Now, if you want to help support the show, I would appreciate it. If you need to do that in fiat, I have a, uh, a Patreon page. It's Bitcoin and Podcast is the name of the Patreon page. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash Bitcoin and podcast, all one word. And you can support me with the dirty fiat because I still have one leg planted firmly in the fiat world because guess what? My electricity company doesn't take Bitcoin yet. Although I can almost guarantee you that they probably will be very, very soon. Also, uh, a podcast app 2.0, like .com, I think is the name of it. Hold on, let me check. Ah, it's just not going to happen for me this morning, people. I can't find it. There is some some kind of web <clears throat> web page uh, named New Podcast App is floating out there somewhere. I never can seem to find it. <clears throat> uh, but you can go to Podcast Index, search for Podcast Index, and look for their apps. Um, that is um, going to tell you which podcasting app supports uh, 2.0 or podcasting 2.0. And if you so choose, you can stream me a Satoshi's direct to my Lightning wallet contained within the boundaries of what my Lightning node contains. And you can stream me sats directly to there. Now, on with the news. Samuel Haig writing for Cointelegraph. El Salvador introduces a fuel subsidy of 20 cents per gallon to locals who pay in BTC. Honestly, that just sounds like a discount, not, not really a, a subsidy, but let's get into it. Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele has announced that local consumers can enjoy a 20 cents per gallon reduction in petrol prices when paying using the government-backed wallet Chivo. Describing the news as positive for the pockets of Sal Salvadorans, the president announced the subsidy via Twitter on September the 30th. According to a rough translation, Bukele stated, quote, the state company Chivo negotiated with the largest gas station companies in our country so that starting tomorrow, their stations will sell each gallon of fuel 20 cents cheaper with the Chivo wallet, In quote. Bukele emphasized that there is no limit to the discount and that any local person or company can access the rebate. He added that the discount will erase several increases in the international price of fuels and reduce transportation costs in supply chains. However, some Salvadorans appear unconvinced in that the subsidy ultimately benefits the public, with Twitter user Adan3840 responding, quote, Those 20 cents will come from all of us, right? The gas station does not lose. There goes the refund after paid with the taxes of even those who walk on foot, end quote. Others were cynical of the government's decision to offer the discount to only those who pay using Chivo with another Twitter account, Twitter account questioning why the administration did not move to offer relief on fuel prices at an earlier date. 
Alongside the news, Bukele also revealed that he has authorized a fund intended to stabilize the domestic price of liquefied gasoline. The president asserted that while the international market had planned a $1.17 price rise in the price of 25-pound cylinders of, oh, sorry, of liquefied gas, Salvadoran locals will experience a slight reduction in cost. He added that the government will absorb the increase for one year only, noting any reductions in global gas prices will also be passed on to consumers during the period. El Salvador became the first country to legally recognize Bitcoin as legal tender. Yes, I know. We all know that. <laughs> Bukele claimed that one-third of Salvadorans were already using Chivo less than three weeks after its launch. However, onlookers have expressed skepticism regarding Bukele's reports of surging crypto adoption with outspoken crypto critic and author David Gerard asserting that Salvadoran officials are feeding Bukele numbers that please him that fall apart under the slightest examination. In his attack of the 50-foot 50, 50 blockchain newsletter, Gerard analyzed Chivo usage metrics reported by Bukele to conclude that the government-backed wallet would be doing more transactions a day than Visa does worldwide if the president's data were accurate. So a little bit of Bukele bashing right there. Always be skeptical of, of, these of all these people. I mean, I was talking to my wife about it last night. I want to like the guy. I do. But... I've just seen terrible people be beloved, you know, all over the world. I've seen it before. I will see it again. You know, I'll see it several times before I die and pass this world on. But for, you know, for right now, I'm also being very, very skeptical. Uh, I'm just tired of being fooled. I, I really am. So who knows? Although this doesn't sound like a subsidy, this just sounds like a flat, you know, like a flat ass discount to, you know, to me. <coughs> However, we shall see. We shall see. Coinbase, uh, well, no, sorry, not Coinbase. Coindesk uh, has this one about Coinbase from Nate D. Camillo. Coinbase multi-factor authentication hack affects at least 6,000 customers. Good. God, a vulnerability that allowed hackers to bypass Coinbase's multi-factor authentication SMS option has affected 6,000 of the exchange's customers, according to a notification letter. Between March and May 20th, the hacker or hackers used a flaw in Coinbase's account recovery process to get the SMS two-factor authentication token to break into customers' accounts and transfer funds out of them. The bad actor or actors also had access to the email address, a password, and phone number associated with each Coinbase account. Coinbase believes that the hacker stole these credentials through a phishing scheme and noted in its letter to the California AG that it has not found evidence of the hacker getting this information from Coinbase itself. Quote, we took immediate action to mitigate the impact of the campaign by working with external partners to remove phishing sites as they were identified, as well as notifying the email providers impacted. A Coinbase spokesperson said via email, Unfortunately, we believe, although cannot conclusively determine, that some Coinbase customers may have fallen victim to the phishing campaign and turned over their Coinbase credentials and the phone numbers verified in their accounts to attackers. Coinbase said it is compensating customers for the stolen funds, but it's unclear whether those payments are being made in fiat or crypto. The exchange recommended that users switch to a more secure version of multi-factor authentication, such as a hardware security key or authentication app. This appears to be one of the largest breaches to have affected Coinbase. Other notable breaches include a password glitch in August 2019 that stored 3,500 customers' passwords in plain text on an internal server log, although outside parties didn't take advantage of the vulnerability. In the same month, Coinbase revealed the details of a sophisticated attack that was blocked by Coinbase, but that resembled what would normally happen in a nation-state-sponsored attack. Good Lord. Wish they detail that a little bit more, but they don't. That's the end of that particular article. So if, you're, uh, if your coins are on any exchange, Coinbase or otherwise, please get them off. There's no reason to have them on there. It's fairly easy to custody your you know custody by yourself the only problem with self custody is that it scares the living piss out of me and everybody else that does it i'm sorry this is just the truth i mean if you're not just a little bit going oh 
God, if I lose my keys, it's all over. Yeah, that's that's part of the deal, man. That's part of the deal. But it's better than waiting for a hack to come around like this, you know? And then, like, what if Coinbase doesn't make you whole? And also, what's the tax implications? Because now you've, like, especially if they give it back to you in fiat, I don't know. I, I literally don't know. I mean, is it a taxable event when, when somebody hacks and your coins get stolen and the exchange pays you back in fiat? I mean, that sounds a lot like cashing out your coins to, to fiat to me. So it seems like it'd be a taxable event that would be forced on you. I, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know. You'll have to figure it out for yourself. But I, I do recommend holding your own keys so that you don't have to worry about this kind of garbage. Okay, let's see. Hold on. Let's get into this one from Bitcoin Magazine's Heidi Porter. A look at Bitcoin and biases uh, price. Okay, we'll look at the, the price bias here. You try to have the Bitcoin conversation. All you hear back is fear, uncertainty, or doubt. You try to explain Bitcoin and their eyes glaze over. Often no coiners or altcoiners just don't want to hear about Bitcoin. Let's try to understand by looking into the cognitive biases that enable the FUD and the noise once these are understood, we can try debiasing instead. We define cognitive bias as, quote, a systematic pattern of deviation from norm or rationality and judgment. Individuals create their own subjective reality from their perception of the input. An individual's construction of reality, not the objective input, may dictate their behavior in the world, end quote. In short, our judgment is often not accurate in predictable ways. To understand the system, systematic errors in people's Bitcoin judgments, let's start by looking at four biases around Bitcoin's price. Availability and recency bias. Quote, Bitcoin is too volatile, end quote. When Bitcoin's price changes by more than a fraction, every news source has an article, often with language of hysterics. You cannot hide from the availability of that information. This is availability bias. Quote, the human tendency to think that examples of things that come readily to mind are more representative of truth than is actually the case. End quote. Articles about Bitcoin's volatility are also in recent memory. This is recency bias. Quote, a cognitive bias that favors recent events over historical events. One way to reduce the availability bias is to look at more data. One way to reduce the recency bias is to look at more data over time. If you zoom out and take a long view of more Bitcoin price data, the price numbers constantly goes up a lot. Bitcoin can be volatile when looking at a short time frame, but Bitcoin has a steadily increasing price over time. Quote, buy and hold, end quote, is the standard advice with regards to the stock market. Do the same with Bitcoin, buy and hold. Or, as Bitcoiners are fond of saying, HODL, because number go up over the long term. Unit bias. Next up is unit bias. The concept that buyers are more enticed to buy a whole unit of a given currency instead of a fractional quantity. Many people think that they need to buy a whole Bitcoin. They don't know that the smallest unit of Bitcoin is not one BTC, it's one Satoshi. We know 100 cents equals a dollar. We can similarly say 100 million Satoshis equals one BTC. Buying 0.00034500 BTC seems like a paltry, pointless amount because of unit bias. To de-bias the unit bias, simply focus on the smaller unit. Denominating it as buying 34,500 sats is much more enticing, even though this is the exact same amount of Bitcoin. People should first aspire to become a SAT millionaire, 0.01 BTC, and then set their sights on maybe someday accumulating enough Satoshis until they hold a whole Bitcoin. There's no need to view your holdings in tiny fractions of BTC. Just stack the SATs, please. Looking at the recent price of Bitcoin, it's easy to anchor on that price and think it's too late, the price is too high, I should have bought it five or 10 years ago. This is anchoring bias and it is when an individual's decisions are influenced by a particular reference point or an anchor. Bitcoin at 100 is too late to buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin at 1000 is too late to buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin at 10,000 is too late to buy Bitcoin. The trajectory usually demonstrates one way to de-bias the anchoring bias. Zoom out and choose a different anchor. You can also talk to more people 
to get a different perspective and anchor on a different number. Or you can also look across other similar areas and see that your anchoring number should not be an inhibitor. If you look at the stock market, it was too late, or was it too late to buy when the Dow was at 15,000? If Bitcoin goes to 100,000, was it too late to buy Bitcoin at 50,000? I don't know. Next up is hindsight bias, though. The common tendency for people to perceive past events as having been more predictable than they, well, they actually were. How many people claim to know that Bitcoin's price would go way up all along, that it would hit 30,000, 40,000, 50,000? My bet is that those same people will be sitting pretty knowing that Bitcoin will eventually reach 100,000, 150,000, 200,000. Hindsight bias is one bias that all current Bitcoiners would like to experience about Bitcoin's price. No need to de-bias this. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've only looked at one set of biases around one area of Bitcoin, the price. Other areas to explore include biases such as authority, reactive devaluation, and in-group or conformity biases with respect to high-profile political, business, and financial figures' view of Bitcoin. We can also look into the availability of recency bias around the often unfactual focus on the E in the ESG narrative, even though Bitcoin has a huge S and G benefits. Yet another area is biases around ambiguity and functional fixedness, which affect thinking around the varied functions and utility of Bitcoin. Most of the erroneous critiques about Bitcoin stem from biases and noise. Understanding the Bitcoin biases and what we can do to de-bias them is a road to better understanding, further adoption of Bitcoin, and the better world we Bitcoiners think it will enable, biased or not. Okay, that's the end of the article, and I agree. I, I, I cannot disagree with anything in here. Uh, resetting all this uh, when we're talking to people about Bitcoin is probably uh, a, a good thing to do. However, don't think that will it, that it's going to be a magic bullet. People's the, the people that all right, Heidi when she's talking in this article about people's eyes glazing over when we talk about Bitcoin, think about who it is that you're talking to. You're talking to some, probably you're if you're listening to this, you're talking to somebody from the west. You're talking to somebody who looks at the financial landscape as solid as a rock even though we know better they look at it as solid as a rock. Why? Because of their biases. It's the same shit. So do we need to de-bias Bitcoin or do we need to de-bias the legacy financial situation? I mean, you're, you're fighting against a Visa network that always works. You're fighting against a MasterCard network that always works. You know, unless you've been debanked and, de, you know, disallowed, and honestly, not everybody has, with the majority of people still have access to banking and PayPal and all that kind of shit. Um, if you haven't been deplatformed like that, then where, where are your biases? Your biases are the fact that banks work, Visa works, MasterCard works, Fiat works. It all works. How do you debias that shit? Think about that. Let's move on. Okay, now, Bitcoin is the singularity. Bitcoin is singular. The word singular refers to just one instance of an object or occurrence. A secondary definition of the word describes that oneness as remarkable or outstanding. A singular beauty, for example. A singular individual might also be described as unique. Bitcoin is a technological singularity by both definitions of the word. It is unique. There is only one Bitcoin network. There is no other distributed network of digital money, property, and energy that has the guarantees that Bitcoin offers. This is also immune to capture or forfeiture by governance. As to the second definition, it is precisely the singleness of purpose, this guarantee to property that sets Bitcoin apart as remarkable or outstanding. A singularity in mathematics and physics is certainly a unique phenomenon. Unlike most objects or regions of the universe, a singularity is unique by virtue of its infinite density. A singularity is the point or region of a black hole where space and time become infinitely distorted. Mass becomes infinitely dense. While I don't think it is intellectually honest to talk about the physical and digital realms as if they were subject to distinct laws of separate universes, we could perhaps agree. 
that within the physical universe, the mass or density of Bitcoin, while extraordinarily elusive to qualify and quantify, would be something less than infinite. That is, while Bitcoin must consume energy to stay alive as a network, that energy is indexed on a digital ledger and is quite light informationally and physically to store and to transmit. Nonetheless, Bitcoin can be thought of as a financial black hole if that in that if it continues to operate as it currently does, it will subsume the market share of other stores of value. The asymmetric, asymmetric advantage that Bitcoin has over every other object is that it is not an object. It can be stored as a tiny amount of data anywhere that data can exist. It can be transported and copied for no cost. The maintenance cost for the average Bitcoin holder is zero. These few considerations alone ensure that people, if they are rational, who have been storing their wealth in what are figuratively and literally sinking ships, will move that wealth into Bitcoin indefinitely. The singular nature of Bitcoin does not mean that people will stop owning real estate, gold, stocks, dollar reserves, or art. It means that many people who have sought stores of value in non-dynamic physical objects with high maintenance cost or arbitrarily debased digital assets will move their wealth into Bitcoin permanently. Bitcoin's function is what it does to store and appreciate value as Bitcoin has historically stored and appreciated wealth on longer timescales better than any other asset. There is no reason to trade wealth back out of Bitcoin again. This one-way trade of buying Bitcoin is a financial and technological event horizon for many, wherein their wealth, once it has been turned into Bitcoin, will be stored for generations. A technological singularity could be described as an intelligence explosion. It's a process of improvement one could argue humans have already entered. The internet is perhaps the broad intelligence explosion of our lifetime. The distributed hive mind of the internet is irrevocable. Even if it were to be dismantled, knowledge about the internet would remain intact and its eventual reemergence is highly probable. A technological singularity is irreversible. Another technological singularity that falls within the bounds of the internet intelligence explosion, but is somewhat more narrow in domain is Bitcoin. What I mean by narrow is of course that Bitcoin has very specific applications. And while it is the best technology for storing and transferring value, it is not the best way to transfer other data or knowledge because its program is specific. But Bitcoin, like the internet, would be very difficult if not impossible to destroy. And upon its destruction, it would likely reemerge simply by virtue of the fact that it is the best solution to store the value problem and the best assurance of property rights that humans have. So broadly, the internet is an information system and more narrowly, Bitcoin is a value system can both be considered the technological singularity of distributed systems. In theory, on a long time scale, no internal or external anthropogenic and non-anthropogenic existential risks really pose a threat to a technological singularity. After the advent of singular technology such as the internet and Bitcoin, generations of technology will improve exponentially. So quickly that for humans alive today, the technological experience becomes nearly incomprehensible on increasingly shorter timescales. The internet and Moore's law have had such an effect on the last few decades. One would be remiss not to see that the financial universe is drastically different in terms of user experience and products and services offered over a decade after Bitcoin's creation. A technological singularity cannot really occur without resulting in a superintelligence, <clears throat> a powerful form of machine intelligence, which would quickly eclipse the potential of the smartest humans who have ever lived. We have not achieved this with computers and distributed, or have we not achieved this with computers and distributed systems already? The controversial nature of this point is merely an empirical er error. We can move the goalpost on what qualifies intelligence to make ourselves feel in control. However, one must admit that the hive mind of the internet and most computers today can read, write, and transmit exponentially more information than any human can. So the internet is super intelligent from the vantage of human capacity for knowledge or information processing and transmission. Given the indestructibility of distributed systems and the way they subsume or surround our understanding, it's probably worthwhile to investigate them as legitimate forms of machine intelligence. Bitcoin, within its specified domain by these same measures, is also more intelligent than humans as it requires computation to operate that are at any given moment intractable for any one person to comprehend. 
as we've seen with the Lightning Network, Bitcoin has a method of scaling and solving different problems outside of its original scope. What remains to be seen is how this technological singularity of distributed systems will affect humans going forward. While Bitcoin alleviates future uncertainty for individuals, because of its singular technology, its broad adoption will surely present singular problems and consequences and have unanticipated effects on society at large. Although anyone with an internet connection can more or less find a way to purchase Bitcoin and could in theory secure it offline, many don't, Adoption is spreading, but it's worth pointing out that the wealth disparity between those who hold Bitcoin now and those who first buy some in, say, 10 years will be enormous. The fundamental rule of Bitcoin is that you have to have Bitcoin to spend Bitcoin. 10 years from now, some extremely wealthy people by fiat standards, which we would could consider a, legal fi a legacy financial system, will have absolutely none of the apex asset. This will be masses getting in at much higher costs. The societal transition is not as simple as exchanging one currency for another at a later date. Accumulating Bitcoin is time sensitive and unforgeable. Laggards will be at a huge comparative disadvantage. John von Neumann, among the first to write about technological singularities, expressed that human affairs as we know them could not continue beyond that historic point. There are many reasons for this. What place would humans and our delicate environment hold in the program of a machine superintelligence? What is essential to humans, our collective values and our goals must be engineered into the singularity or we may lose power and livelihood simply out of neglect. It is fortunate indeed that Bitcoin as a distributed system can store and transmit unforgeable value. While value is subjective, Bitcoin's unforgeable costliness, decentralization, and scarcity contrive to make it a far better candidate than dollars or any other digital asset for programming a superintelligence's values. Programming the value accretion of a superintelligence wasn't even on the table until Bitcoin. One of the reasons we had not experienced a technological singularity on the planet until the internet and Bitcoin is because our capacity for knowledge, our brains, have not fundamentally changed for thousands of years. We have about the same biological potential for intelligence as the ancient Egyptians, the Aztecs, and all highly sophisticated civilizations of the past. Since then, we have simply accumulated more knowledge, engineered more com uh, complicated tools, and made information highly accessible. <coughs> Every year, we engineer far more complicated technology than any humans have ever before but we're still fundamentally limited as biological agents of information processing. There are at least two viable routes to overcome this problem. One is to improve our own capacity for intelligence. This could potentially be achieved through mass embryonic selection. Oh God. To collectively raise the intelligence of our populations, the probably faster and more feasible and more morally sound option is through a seed machine intelligence a technology capable of improving its own capabilities and producing more intelligent machines. In just a few iterations, such a program could qualitatively far surpass human intelligence, but, but through what measure or value accretion system should such a technology improve itself? B Bitcoin. <laughs> Whether and to what extent we can control a superintelligence in the paths uh, and dangers of doing so our discussions for another time, but with Bitcoin, we have potentiated programmable technology or technological singularity and possibly superintelligence. Without Bitcoin, machines have no autonomy, no beliefs, no motivations, and no desires. So the gist is honestly kind of scares the piss out of me. Uh, machine superintelligence is not something to be to be playing around with people. It doesn't mean not do it. It just means I think we're going to have to take a little bit more care. We're going to have to be a little bit more careful than how humans normally are with new technologies. All right. You saw what happened with, well, actually you may not have seen what happened with the television. They call it programming for a reason. And the boob tube was not invented, was literally not invented to bring you Lucille Ball shows or Star Trek shows or Conan the Barbarian movies and, and the like. No, no, no. No, it's a propaganda machine. It always has been. That's why it was designed. They call it programming for a reason. Let's start thinking in little, you know, a little bit more calculated and careful ways 
when it comes to machine intelligence, shall we? And we'll run the numbers. Flammable liquids are up. Metals are down. West Texas Intermediate up 0.13%, $75.98. Brent North Sea is up almost a quarter of a point to $79.46. Natural gas swinging for the fences again, up three and three quarters of one percent, or sorry, three and three quarters percent to $5.80 per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline is down 0.15% to $2.24 a gallon. Gold is down a half point, 1749. Silver is down almost a full point to $22.32. Platinum is down a full two and a half points. Copper is up a full one and a half points. And palladium is down one full point. Agricultural futures are all mixed, but they are met except for coffee, which is down a full one point. Uh, Dow futures is down a quarter. S&P futures is down a quarter of a point. NASDAQ futures is down almost a half point. And the S&P mini is slipping by 0.15 percentage points. Real money has it at $47,556. 221,000 transactions were performed in the last 24 hours. That's a little over 9,000 transactions per hour with only 684,000 BTC being sent in the last 24 hours. That's 28,500 BTC every hour on the hour being sent. With an average transaction value of 3 BTC and a median transaction value of 0.012 BTC or just under $600, block times are high at 10 minutes and 31 seconds. We have 0.08 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis and 11.3 BTC taken in fees overall in the last 24 hour period. We've lost 18 and a one quarter percent of the hash rate. We are down to 140.8 exahashes per second, which is still a very strongly uh, defended network, honestly. Uh, your shitcoin indicator is up to 21 cents. It's In fact, it is 21.5 United States pennies and of course, your shitcoin indicator is Dogecoin. We have 5,700 transactions waiting on 10 blocks to clear. Our market capitalization of Bitcoin is $894.7 billion, which is 7.8% of gold's total market cap. If you so choose, you will be able to purchase 27.1 ounces of shiny metal rock with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 18,834,241 and one half of, and almost... Damn close. 3,000 of those are in, in the Lightning Network. In fact, there are 2,995.27 BTC locked in the Lightning Network with a capacity value of, get this, $142.3 million. Not so tiny anymore, is it? We are running uh, 15,691 nodes with 73,600, sorry, 73,663 payment channels and 74.3% of the entirety of the Lightning Network is being run over 10,302 Tor nodes. That means that 200 or 2,225.25 BTC are locked in the Tor side of the Lightning Network. And that's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news that you can use. We're going to start off this part of the show with Shinobi and two different ideas of the Lightning Network out of Bitcoin Magazine. Lightning has been on an explosive growth tear lately in terms of more liquidity coming to the network. Since the start of 2021, the network has grown from 33,000 or so channels to more than 65,000 channels. The amount of Bitcoin in those channels has grown from around 1,000 BTC to almost 2,500. Yeah, Shinobi, you're a little late. We're up to about 3,000. This is widely viewed as a massive indicator of success, and it is, but it is starting to illuminate a growing divide in attitude about what will actually dominate the incentives of individual node operators in the future. This rapid growth has led to a diminishing return in routing fees for node operators, and some of them don't care. Since the launch of PlebNet, I have been seeing more and more Lightning node operators espousing the attitude that they do not care about earning routing fees for running their node. 
This stands in complete contrast to all of my long-term thinking about how the Lightning Network will evolve financially. And I don't mean don't want to earn a profit in routing. I mean literally not charging routing fees. This seems completely irrational in terms of economic incentives. And for any misrepresentation of the, pe of the reasons people want to run a node like this, I apologize. To me, it seems like people want to engage in this behavior out of a sense of altruism and to maintain lightning as a pleb-owned piece of financial infrastructure. And I don't see this as economically sustainable. Before we get into the dynamics of profit, let's just consider the cost side of things. In order to close and open a lightning channel, you have to transact on-chain, which incurs a mining fee. This is completely inescapable and is the base cost to enter and leave the lightning network. Now consider the routing fees collected in relation to these on-chain fees. If the routing fees are in excess of on-chain fees, you pocket a profit, and if they are less, you incur a loss. So obviously an economically rational node operator the goal should be to maximize the routing fees they collect in a competitive market so that before the end of a channel's lifetime, they have earned more in routing fees than they paid to open the channel and will pay to close that channel. As more liquidity enters the Lightning Network on average, the amount in routing fees nodes will collect will go down. And we've seen for many node operators during this year's massive growth of channels and liquidity, now, it's a little more nuanced than just more money equals everyone makes less money. As many people point out, channels and their liquidity are not quite fungible. A channel open to a large merchant, everyone frequents is going to be able to collect higher fees than a channel open to a random guy named Bob and, and some people occasionally send small payments too. But as more channels are open to that large merchant, fees in those channels will tend or trend down as people try to competitively undercut each other on price, and that's just basic economics. The way that I've always seen the Lightning Network evolving long-term is economic competition over placing channels between nodes or entities that have high transactional demand. Those that can do this cost-effectively will earn a nice profit, and those that can't will, so to speak, be put out of business. Also, a last mention before moving on, obviously in this mode of thinking, as on-chain fees increase over time by necessity, routing fees will increase as well. Now, let's consider a routing node operator who is not concerned with profits. I'm going to consider two subcategories here, those who will at least recoup their cost and those who will not even care about doing that. Operators who still aim to recover their cost will still have to charge routing fees, but because of not caring to earn a profit on top of that, they will be able to undercut profit-seeking routing nodes in terms of fees. This will inevitably lead to such nodes attracting more volume than one charging higher fees in search of profit and eat into the revenue of profit-seeking nodes. Now, taking into account the dynamic of more liquidity dragging down revenue, this could potentially, if a large enough number of node operators, uh, sorry, if a large enough number of nodes operate under such a model will make it more difficult or in the extreme, potentially impossible to earn a profit routing transactions on Lightning. In the case of node operators who don't even care about recouping costs, the same type of dynamic with profit-seeking nodes exists, but with two major differences. The nodes distorting the market in this way are actually in the long term going to incur loss and the profit seeking nodes because of that could actually themselves be pushed into incurring losses to stay competitive instead of just missing out on profits. Obviously though, this becomes a game of chicken in the extreme and eventually one has to think or eventually someone has to blink. Sorry. I do not believe for a second, especially as fees go up, that someone will just in perpetuity continually lose money on subsidizing other people's layer two transactions. There are some deeper nuances that I've left out above just to keep the mental models I'm describing simple, such as route finding heuristics that might intentionally look for routes that charge higher fees as a sign of higher reliability, channel rebalancing to delay touching the blockchain longer and so on. But I think even considering all these things, one major dynamic remains. These are two entirely different economic schools of thought in terms of motivations and incentives to operate routing nodes on the Lightning Network. They will not exist in a vacuum. They will interact with each other in the same marketplace as the network continues growing, and it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Oh, I don't know. How, what do you think about it? I mean, I, I kind of, you know, Shinobi is, Sh Shinobi can be pretty, 
pretty abrasive, honestly. And I, I think that's just his personality. I don't, I don't think he actually sets out to be that abrasive. I think he's just, he's just kind of a straight shooter. However, in this particular case, <clears throat> um, I think he's, I think he's correct, but I, I, I don't think anybody can actually see the future here. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens when you've got a collision between people who definitely want to make a profit doing routing and those who don't give a shit. Right now, I'm sort of in the latter camp. I kind of don't care. I have, a, I have you know, a routing node. I've got several channels open. I, you know, it, I, don't get a lot of, I don't get a lot of fees. You know, what I get more of, though, is, is a lot of people listening to the podcast through something like the Breeze Wallet. And I get a lot of that, but I don't see a whole lot of routing going through my node. I am not, I'm apparently not well connected enough. And right now, for just right now, I don't care. I literally do not care. I keep my, my lightning node up and running to ser help service the network, to help service Bitcoin and to get some of those sweet, sweet Satoshis when you guys are listening to these dulcet tones. However, we cannot not think about the future here. And the the questions to ask is should we continue not giving a shit about routing fees or should we turn into Scrooge McDuck about routing fees or is it going to be more interesting to watch these two camps uh, collide with each other? Personally, I think it's the latter. I think it's going to be interesting to see what kind of market dynamics occur when you've got people who are greedy bastards rub it up against people who are definitely the antithesis of greedy bastards. And speaking about greedy bastages, compound founder says 800 or eight, $80 million bug presents a moral dilemma for DeFi users. And Andrew Thurman is going to tell us about it from Coindesk. If a decentralized finance protocol accidentally gave you millions of dollars in tokens, are you obligated to give it back? In an interview with Coindesk following an $80 million exploit, Compound Labs founder Robert Leshner is arguing users should do just that. On Wednesday night, a bug in Money Market Compound's code led to an erroneous disbursement of comp tokens intended for long-term liquidity mining rewards. The Compound Twitter handle acknowledged the bug shortly after, saying that no user funds were at risk. The bug only applied to Compound's comptroller contract, which is responsible for distributing liquidity mining records uh, earned over time. Nearly the entirety of the comptroller contract has now been drained, with 280,000 comp distributed to users incorrectly, according to Leshner. Despite the eye-popping sums lost to the bug, however, the community is now captivated by a debate as to what users should be obligated to do with those funds. Quote, This has been, without a doubt, the worst day in the history of Compound Protocol, Leshner told Coindesk. And he went on to cry, I mean, to say, What makes it worse is that I and most folks are completely powerless to do anything besides sit back and watch this moral dilemma play out. Now, you, you, you set the moral play in, in, in motion, Rob. All right. You, 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 I won't get into it. In a tweet on Thursday night, Leshner warned recipients of the erroneous tokens that there could be real-world consequences for keeping them, namely that the United States Internal Revenue Service might want to hear about it yeah, here's that that uh, that tweet again. If you received a large or incorrect amount of comp from the compound protocol error, please return it to compound time lock. And then he gives the uh, uh, the uh, address of the wallet. Keep 10% as a white hat. Otherwise, it's being reported as income to the IRS, and most of you are doxed. Yeah, thanks, Rob. That's like that's just. Customer service is definitely not his strong point, is it? Some members of the DeFi community interpreted the comment to mean that Compound Labs was planning to report recipients to relevant tax authorities. Leshner apologized for the tweet shortly after. Threats of doxing have proven to be effective in dealing with exploits in the past. Last month, a non-fungible token team memorably threatened to call the FBI and ordered soup to a hacker's address. The hacker relented, returning stolen funds. However, in this instance, even if an organization wished to pursue claimants, in practicality, it may be an empty threat. Compound Labs is a real-world entity that is working on the protocol, but there is no clear basis for it to pursue legal action. The structure of the decentralized autonomous organization is such that it 
is now just another member of the community, according to Compound Labs representatives. The representatives also said that the Compound interface is hosted on a distributed file storage protocol, the interplanetary file system, and there's no reportable information about users collected in any way. However, due to the nature of the bug, many of the recipients of the tokens are not sophisticated hackers. They just happen to hit the jackpot. Their, their operational security, like or OPSEC, isn't hacker grade. Some addresses that claimed large sums of the tokens have interacted with centralized exchanges where their real world information is stored and the claim could have an impact on their taxes. Claiming the funds required no knowledge of the bug and some users might not have been aware that the exploit was underway. They may have received millions while intending to harvest much smaller sums as rewards. Leshner said the DeFi community has rallied around the protocol in an effort to find solutions. Yearn Finance and MakerDAO representatives have been active in community channels in finding short and long-term solutions. However, Compound has an extremely rigid and slow governance process by design. Architecture intended to make the protocol more resilient is now acting as a barrier to fix it. It will take another five days before the community can approve any updates to the contract code. Technical solutions to the initial bug aside, however, the protocol now faces an even bigger problem. Trying to convince users who receive tokens to return them to the community. Quote, in my opinion, this is a bank error in a couple of people's favor, said Leshner. He went on, quote, I think it's harder because there was nothing deliberately criminal. If there was a hacker who deliberately exploited the code, people would celebrate going after them with every means possible. These users weren't initially malicious, end quote. So there you go. You know, it's all bullshit. The compound finance thing is, is another clown show in a clown world stuck in a dumpster fire that we're all warming our hands by. Unless, of course, you're taking part in any of this silly-ass business. And if you are, you know, maybe you got rich. I don't know. It's just that the whole moral dilemma doesn't begin with whether or not some idiot that was, you know, yearning finance for sushi tokens or whatever, that's not, you know, got accidentally got paid. That's not where the moral dilemma is, is it? No, the moral dilemma began when they opened compound finance. When they set those contracts in motion, that's where the moral dilemma started. And everything after that is based on the decision to open those contracts. You know, Robert is at fault. His, the compound finance team is at fault. The moral dilemma lies in, in their hands. It is not set in the laps of the people that took part. I'm sorry, it just isn't. Because they were all roped into this bullshit by Robert Leshner and team. So it's Robert Leshner who has the moral dilemma and not the people who got all the drained compound. Um, by the way, uh, let's see, October, the, uh, yesterday there's a uh, blurb about uh, compound again. $22 million have been drained from compound contract that was hit for $80 million last week. So we are now at $102 million worth of moral dilemma, Robert, that you own all that. That's, that's all you, pal. Now, speaking of another idiot, a New York congressman wants the Treasury to mint a trillion-dollar coin to pay off U.S. debt. Yes, we've heard this before. This is apparently something new. This is Casey Wagner writing for Blockworks. Representative Jerry, or sorry, yes, the United States government has the power to mint a $1 trillion platinum coin to pay off the U.S. Treasury bills. And yes, there is at least one congressman on board. Representative Jerry Nadler voiced the idea on Tuesday during a House Democratic Caucus meeting, according to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Quote, Jerry Nadler wants to have a coin, a trillion dollar coin, she told reporters Tuesday, that doesn't even require a congressional act. Oh, thank you. Thank you. God. Oh, Jesus. The idea appears to be legally sound under a vague provision of the Coinage Act of 1792, more commonly known as the Mint Act that authorizes the minting of platinum coins for any amount to be used to finance public debt. Pelosi is correct. Congressional approval is not required. The Treasury Secretary has the authority to mint and issue coins in amounts the Secretary decides are necessary to meet the needs of the United States. And according to a 1982 amendment to the Coinage Act, 
quote, on one hand, minting what is ultimately a meme coin to work around national debt limits shows how arbitrary the fiat system is in the first place and wouldn't have a major quantitative effect on anything it performed once, said Lynn Alden, founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategies. Quote, on the other hand, going that route can really spook the market by setting bad precedents. Basically, it well, because it basically goes around the intended checks and balances that keep some fiat systems more reliable than banana republic fiat systems, end quote. Under U.S. law, the Treasury can issue bonds to pay for its obligations, but Congress is required for authorization on spending and taxes. The Federal Reserve is supposed to be independent of both the executive and the legislative branches, choosing what assets they will or sell, they will buy or sell within their mandate, Alden said, quote, the Treasury <clears throat> executive branch going around Congress, the legislative branch, and the spirit of the law by minting a coin in a loophole and then encouraging or forcing the Fed to swap it for basically, sho basically shows that the Treasury can spend without taxing or issuing debt and can therefore outright print money, end quote. <laughs> she goes on further. Of course... That's essentially what is happening happening anyway, but it still needs to be rubber stamped by a few supposedly separate entities, whereas this approach breaks that illusion of checks, balances, and independence. It's not the first time that the idea has been floated. Talk of mending a platinum coin swirled during President Obama's tenure when a similar debt ceiling crisis was faced. He later described the crises as one of the scariest points of his presidency, and the idea of minting a coin seemed absurd to him. Quote, it was some primitive. It was out of the Stone Age. Good God. President Obama said during an interview on the Pod Save America podcast in 2017, quote, I pictured rolling in some coin, end quote. As for logistics, the United States government could, in theory, deem a coin of any size worth $1 trillion. President Obama admitted that when he pictured the coin, it was quite large. It also, <laughs> it is also a common misconception that a coin of such value would require copious amounts of platinum. In reality, the value of coins minted by the U.S. Treasury is determined by legal tender and not material value. Yeah, that happened in 1971, didn't it? The coin, if created and sold, would become the property of the Fed. It would likely be kept with other physical assets in the vault in the basement of the Fed Bank in New York in Manhattan. So you won't even get to see it. Oh, who gives a shit? It's all a bunch of hooey anyway. Uh, the Federal High Court of Nigeria has approved the E-Naira CBDC rollout. This is Arjit Sarkar uh, out of Cointelegraph. The Nigerian Federal High Court joins the growing list of regulators across the globe to approve the rollout of a central bank digital currency as a legal tender. Named the E-Naira... The digital currency will be issued by the central bank and supported by a homegrown e-Naira wallet. A Nigeria CBDC issuance approval was revealed in a federal court hearing on October the 2nd, led by Justice Taiwo Obama uh, Taiwo, according to a report by Voice of Nigeria. The official e-Naira website said that the digital version of the Nigerian Naira will be made available universally, stating anybody can hold it. Ooh, that's not going to play well, guys, I don't think. Uh, that sounds <laughs> that sounds like it's not going to go how you want it to. As previously reported by Cointelegraph, the launch of the Nigerian CBDC was dedicated to mark the country's 61st Independence Day. While e-Naira will continue to circulate alongside its fiat counterpart, it is marketed as a faster, cheaper, and more secure option for monetary transactions. So the e-Naira has come to pass. And if you don't remember me reporting on it like last week or the week before, or the Nigeria is uh, taking away banking privileges for people that are unvaccinated and other and probably some other issues as well. Um, it's going to be even easier to do that kind of thing with a CBDC. You've got we've got to fight against this. I don't know how though. I mean, I don't want to start. You know. Whipping out the rifles just doesn't seem like the way to go. I, but, you know, how the hell to stop this shit from happening here? I don't know, man. I, I, that's why I really want Texas to peel off of the United States because it may very well be one of the very last bastages of true freedom. I don't know, but that's going to do it for the morning roundup.
it's Monday morning. Can't let you go without a dad says jokes. Are monsters good at math? Not unless you count Dracula. All right, support for the show is always appreciated, and I have uh, five patron patrons now on Patreon, which is pretty cool considering that I just started talking about it last week. Um, thank you, guys. I appreciate that. That gives me, you know, gives me fuel to to go further, to you know, try to start making this my actual, you know, full time full time life. I would very much like to do that. Um, if you can't support in fiat or in terms of Bitcoin, uh, you can always share, retweet, tell people about the podcast. If they need to get their daily news, um, I'm doing it Monday through Friday as much as I possibly can. And I try to bring it to you guys on the East Coast before 7.30 a.m. so that you guys have something to listen to on your way to work. Um, so that's why I do it so damned early, by the way, in case you're wondering, why the hell does this guy get up with oil men and thieves? And I'm like, well, because I want to get this shit on the East Coast as, as soon as humanly possible. And I think it's good to wake up early. I think it's I think it's a, a healthier way to be. I'm not sure if that's true or not, because, God, I wish I could sleep a little bit longer. Uh, but maybe I will tomorrow and I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and... And I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.